Episode 4, The Train Station. There's this one freeway in Orange County, and when it ends in the middle of a big intersection, it sort of spits you right out in front of this old Spanish-style house on the side of the freeway. It's got white stucco walls and a red-tiled roof, and it's framed with pretty bushes and greenery. I feel so much more nervous. <laughs> I've passed by this place, like, I don't even know how many times. Um, and now I'm actually walking up to the place. It's kind of crazy. The most noticeable feature of this place is the big green sign out front. It shows a picture of a hand and the words psychic, palm, and card reader. The door's still closed. No one has ever let me in, but I could see through the glass front door. The waiting room had a couple of beautiful couches, glass tables, and a couple of decadent old-fashioned lamps. That's like one of the first things you see when you walk in, and there's this beautiful waiting room. Paulina spent much of her childhood driving the five hours to get here, to this house by the side of the freeway. Because this house is the famous train station that was packed with people, shuffling in and out all the time. The place where Bobby and his family had been living and hosting blowout parties for years. It was an old house. I remember the stained glass windows. Almost all of them were broken or chipped, but they never wanted to replace them. There was like this special lead design that no repair guy could like redo and so it's a pretty neat place it really is paulina had always had a soft spot for it but visiting the train station and living there would turn out to be two very different experiences after their wedding paulina and bobby moved into this house specifically bobby's old bedroom where they used to battle over video games as kids Bobby's family had spruced it up for them with a fresh coat of paint and a new carpet. You know, they just kind of made it, like, nice for us. And a lot of my stuff was already dropped off in there. So it was honestly a really smooth transition. It didn't feel tough. Like, we just spent so much time there, and I was so used to that house. At first, it all seemed really sweet and welcoming. But being there felt different than it had before. Now there was something new about it, about the house and her husband. Because, she said, Bobby's family was treating her differently. Starting on that very first day, when Paulina was just beginning to settle into her new bedroom, Ruby, her new mother-in-law, walked in the door. I'm like 17, you know, I'm sitting in my head covering, and she's like, I just want to tell you something. Just so you know, my son is gold. And she's like, and he's gold and I could get any girl I want. So if you want to go, it's just a snap of my fingers and I can have another one of you right here. And all the girls want my son. I sent Ruby a letter to respond to these claims and I didn't hear back. But Paulina said in this interaction, she knew that something had changed dramatically. That practically overnight, her role in this family became different. It felt like my relationship 
started to shift from day one. Like day one, when she had that conversation with me, I viewed her differently. And from that moment, every day, like it just kept getting weirder and weirder. This is foretold. Paulina had spent most of her 17 years preparing for marriage. And now finally, she had done the thing. She got engaged and had the elaborate three-day wedding. She knew what was expected of her next. The expectations, in my mind, like, weren't too crazy. Like, you know, just wake up and make sure everything's cleaned. Serve your father-in-law coffee and whoever else is at the house. Stand up, you know, if someone walks in the room. You know, you're cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Go to the market and... That's, like, how you, like, make them proud. And initially, her time as a newly married woman included more celebrating. Oh, the first, like, two months of marriage, I was, like, going out places. We were doing that. Like, we were going out, like, clubbing, dancing, traveling, partying. Like, not in a hardcore way. Like, we'd go to piano bars and and (laughs) dance. Or we would go to, like, hip-hop clubs. And, like, we were having fun street races. And there were just all this fun stuff. Finally, Paulina and Bobby lived in the same place. They could go to all the same parties, hang out with all the same people. And at the end of the night, they could come home together. We were teenagers. It was like our first real, like, dates where we didn't have to hide things. Or it was more of that just kind of getting to know each other at that point. Their families were getting to know them as a couple, too. As Bobby and Paulina bounced from club to club and house party to house party, It was like this newlywed victory tour. The first year after we got married, everyone wanted to, like, celebrate. So when there'd be, like, real many people from a different state, they'd stop by and congratulate us. What I've learned in my reporting is that gatherings are kind of the heart of the Southern California Romani community, especially the Stevens family. Like, if there isn't much associating with outsiders, then you have to get together with people from inside the community. Friends, cousins, second cousins even. And since the population is pretty spread out, when people did make the trip to visit other families, it felt special. People relished the time together. Sometimes it was dinner. Sometimes it was a whole party. Because the party just did last for sometimes days. We met Nasta Lee a couple episodes ago. She's the one who talked about getting pulled out of school as a nine-year-old. It was like one person was doing one deal, and then the next person, oh, you come over now to my house. So we're kind of more like the, I don't know if you know, like the Greek style, the Italian style. And our main thing is we want to feed you. Ugh, I love that. It reminds me of my Portuguese grandma, who never stops feeding me whenever I'm at her house. And it's not like these parties were always ragers. People also enjoyed smaller shindigs and get-togethers. Dancing, singing, hear a favorite song, and they'll eat, drink, and, you know, be happy. You know, that's all it takes. 
The Spanish-style house on the side of the freeway was like the epicenter of Orange County's Romney community, famous for raucous parties and celebrations. For Bobby's parents, parties were the thing. They were generous hosts who kept the family and community together. There was always something, some kind of function going on or something was going on, yeah. Nasta is also related to Bobby's side of the family. So as Nasta told me and our senior producer, Asal Asanapur, she was once a frequent guest at these train station parties. We would go to Orange County like every other day. Oh, yeah, come over. It was like huge in the backyard, from the front to the back, everywhere. Yeah, because people used to just come over, young, old, you name it. And it was 24 hours. Paulina means that literally. One group of people were just getting awake, and the other group is just going to sleep. It's 6 in the morning, and, like, they're just going to sleep from the party. But now the people that have woken up are, you know, making the micheladas and the Bloody Marys. And the first year was just party, party, party. Which honestly sounds like a fun time. But maybe not all the time. Because now Paulina was seeing exactly what was involved in throwing these round-the-clock get-togethers. They had a huge commercial stove inside and outside. They had like two, three fridges, a freezer. Paulina now had to play hostess for this parade of visitors. It was just exhausting, like part of the cooking and the food, like as great as it sounds, like you guys are not scrubbing those pots with a water hose and a million fucking Brillo pads all night and exhausted and dirty. Like I have to do this in a dress and hilts. Every single day, Paulina said she dressed the part of the model housewife, complete with custom outfits. Like, I had to just wear all these dresses. I had, like, over 20 dresses that were specifically sewn to my measurements with a matching head covering. Paulina said she had to meet higher expectations of modesty than her cousins and friends did. Like, those girls could wear, like, a ribbon just around their bun. And I had to wear, like, the full headscarf down to my knees. Like, there was just a higher level of respect that I needed to hold to represent the family. And because this family would host endless parties, at home, Paulina and Bobby could barely find a moment alone together. Anybody could sleep in our room. Anybody can be in our space at any time. Like, drunk men in the middle of the night coming to use your bathroom, you know? It was awkward. And more than just awkward... In this sea of people, Paulina felt like she was drowning. It felt like there was no privacy. Like, nobody had any privacy, period. You're never alone in the Romany world. When I summarized Paulina's newlywed situation for Professor Ian Hancock, he wasn't surprised. There's no room for the individual, which is what happened with Paulina. Um, If you try to be an individual, it it, uh, brings problems. Paulina was barely 18 years old. She wanted to travel abroad, but she said her in-laws wouldn't let her. She wanted to learn how to drive, but she said they wouldn't allow that either. And all that isn't unusual. When I asked John, Paul, and Ruby about this in a letter, they didn't respond. But I have some court documents from Bobby's perspective. And he wrote, quote, "'Women of our culture customarily do not drive.'" Bobby said he drove Paulina around at her request. But Paulina said she started to feel stuck at the train station, at the perpetual party by the side of the freeway. 
so even though Paulina was constantly surrounded by people, she was growing increasingly lonely. What was really difficult was letting go of my family. So I was expected basically to not talk to my family. Because after the wedding, Paulina's mom and dad stopped coming to the train station. It was time for Paulina to acclimate to her new family. There was this weird dynamic with needing to keep me only dealing with them and their family. It would be like, oh, the girl's always talking to her mom or always talking to her family. Like, she needs to. We're her new family. I mean, Paulina basically was their family. She'd known them her whole life. And Ruby was like an aunt figure. She really did make an impact on my life just in the ways of being so emotionally strong. Like, uh, I don't know, like she was just bold and very precise and cold. Ruby was in her late 30s at the time and the matriarch of her family, which kind of made her the de facto conductor of the train station. Ruby was a woman who meant business, and the business was this. Impress everyone, make the men happy, cook clean, and she wanted me to succeed in doing that. So... The expectations of me to serve the men specifically were clearing their ashtrays, going to sing a song, they have a fresh coffee, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, do some dancing, and then serve fresh beer. And during those late night parties, Paulina was serving and entertaining the men, of course, and Ruby was facilitating it all. And she felt bad. Like, my mother-in-law would come in and say, I know you're tired. Like, I know you're exhausted. But your father-in-law really wants you to sing. You know, don't worry about cleaning the kitchen. Like, please just perform and serve a little bit. He wants to see your face. He wants to make sure that you're, you know, doing what you got to do. Like, Ruby considered us, like she would say, like, we're on the same team. And... I believed that at the time, like we were, like we both just wanted to make the men happy, I guess. Now that Ruby had a daughter-in-law, the two of them shared the load. So her getting a daughter-in-law was like a big relief. She was like, ugh, like finally. Paulina said they became almost like partners. Because Paulina wasn't just helping Ruby with the cooking and cleaning and entertaining and coffee making and cocktail mixing and hosting— They both also ran the psychic shop in their house, giving readings to customers who stopped in. Paulina felt like she had a lot to learn from Ruby. We were all sitting in a very close proximity to each other, and she never really disagreed with anything I would do. You know what I mean? I think sometimes I would have questions for her, like I would confide in her, because I was still learning, like, she would say, you know, just kind of the advice, like, don't say that, like, A lot of the stuff I learned from her was valuable, but at the same time, our practices were different, and she could clearly see that. From what Paulina tells me, Ruby's style was a total deviation from what Paulina grew up doing. My mom was really progressive, like, in her work. You know, she did a lot of meditation and She would go to her clients with the beach, and I felt like I'm going into one world, into a complete other. Because Ruby's style 
was not new agey at all. Ruby's routine was more spiritual. Like, we would have to open the doors by a certain time, like the two big French doors, and we'd have to light an incense and, like, put it next to this Buddha statue. And there's, like, this big Jesus crucifix and, like, all these spiritual figures and these giant Catholic candles all over the walls. It was a strong, like, religious, superstitious kind of practice. But in some ways, she couldn't help but admire her new mother-in-law. I felt that working with her was cool because I got to see her little routine and her vibe and just the way she was with people. But it was hard to separate the personal stuff and the business stuff. Like, well, I was cooking all day, but I also have to run the office. And there was really no hours. The house is across the street from a shopping plaza and a nightclub. Customers wandered in all throughout the day and sometimes late at night. We're just always open. Paulina says some days they'd stay open until two in the morning because people would wind up there when the nightclub closed. And sometimes Paulina and Ruby could make an impromptu couple hundred bucks in a night. If we were cooking or having a party night that night, we'd keep the office open. Like, why close it? You know what I mean? Like, we're missing out on business when we're already awake. So might as well open it. Living at the train station full-time, Paulina started to really viscerally get how much responsibility Ruby was juggling. A A part of me was like, how do you even do it all? Like, how are you happy like this? Like, I feel like she wanted me to, like, be her And to a certain degree, I felt like I was turning into her. Day by day, Paulina began to settle into the relentless routine of daily life. You'd wake up, cook coffee, cook food, and then you'd wake up, cook coffee, cook food, you'd wake up, cook coffee, wake up, cook coffee, cook food. If someone came, like, for a reading, you know, you'd, like, give a palm reading, and then you'd wake up, cook coffee, cook food, just cook food, and eating and cleaning, drinking, sometimes smoking occasionally, cook coffee, cook food. Those were our days. I remember just being tired of it. Paulina had spent most of her years preparing for married life. She thought she knew what to expect. But still... It was a massive adjustment. That's pretty much how it is. Again, Professor Hancock didn't bat an eye at Paulina's story. She will go off and and live with her in-laws and become the daughter of her new family. The mother-in-law now takes over and she will treat the new daughter-in-law. It depends on, on the personality, but she will get the best she can out of her and will criticize the way she was trained in her own home before getting married. Oh, well, you mean to say your mother did it that way? We do it this way. Paulina said Ruby had specific rules and higher expectations. Paulina felt like she had to relearn everything she thought she knew, even down to the way she put glasses on the shelf. I remember I put the cups in, like, facing up instead of down. And it was this lecture of, like, 
people you don't understand and the way that we do things in this house are different from the way that you do them at home like basically i would have to have like obvious things repeated to me of like how i am not able to do anything like i have to scrap everything i've learned growing up and learn their way of life the, the, her mother-in-law her sokra is going to to be critical just because that's how mothers-in-law behave professor hancock is talking about the relationship between the sokra and bodhi mother-in-law and daughter-in-law this is the relationship that paulina had truly married into or as Paulina felt, she had been sold into. Like, I think the dowry would have been fine if John Paul and Ruby didn't always tell me, hey, we bought you. You belong to us. We're your gazda, which means landlord. I never got a response from Ruby and John Paul when I asked them about this claim. But when I asked Professor Hancock what he thought, I could practically hear him shrugging through the phone. Yeah. That doesn't surprise you at all? It doesn't surprise me that there are families who may say that sort of thing. It's unkind. But there are Buryas. He's talking about the daughters-in-law here. Who can also be sort of uh, rude and and, uh, uncooperative and resent the whole setup. So there's ill feeling there. This is not ideal. But, you know, we're the same as anybody else on the planet. The tension between the daughter-in-law and the mother-in-law. Mother-in-law tension is a trope in basically any culture. It's certainly not just a Romani issue. That's why it's impossible, dangerous even, to generalize about what gypsies do, what Romani Americans do. uh, Because you're going to get a huge spectrum It's just that this family was pretty far to one end of the spectrum. It bears repeating that Paulina subgroup, Machuaya, is particularly traditional. The Machuaya have carried their culture through 500 years of slavery, through the Holocaust, preserving their identity across the generations. Ruby herself once had to do exactly what Paulina did. She was once a new daughter-in-law. She, too, had to move in with her new in-laws and serve them and get used to their rules— In fact, Paulina said she remembered one time that Ruby seemed to understand exactly how she was feeling. She'd be like, I hated my mother-in-law so much growing up, and now I'm just turning into her. As you know well by now, I haven't been able to talk to Ruby, but I've been trying to put myself in her shoes here. Because the way Paulina describes it, Ruby had had a hard time acclimating to life under her own mother-in-law's roof. Maybe Ruby wanted to help Paulina to pass along the tools that she'd used. And one of those tools for acclimating was this. She has this saying where she's like, there's a switch in your mind and you just have to turn it off. Paulina said that was Ruby's advice. Shut off your emotions. Don't even think about them. Block it out, block it out, block it out. But that was not Paulina. She wanted to talk about how hard she was finding the pressures of marriage. She needed comfort and empathy and hope that things could change. But Bobby couldn't give her that. He would just say, well, you know, it's just my parents and blah, blah, blah. Like, he'd just try to make excuses for them. His parents were just his life. Like, it felt like he was married to them. Sometimes Paulina barely felt married to Bobby. 
She said sometimes he would stay the night at a hotel down the street. I reached out to Bobby for comment, but he wouldn't talk to me. Again, Paulina said she was told not to think too hard about it. Block it out, block it out, block it out. But she couldn't. I told some of his cousins, like the female cousins who I was very close to, and it was a competition of how bad the husbands are. It was like, oh, well, at least he didn't do what my husband did, you know, or at least he doesn't do this, or at least he didn't have a kid with someone else. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to get through to anybody really. Day by day, Paulina felt like she was sinking deeper into her loneliness, unable to take off her smile in the house full of people. She had no one to turn to for comfort. So if I wanted to cry, I'd have to literally lock myself in the bathroom. And even then, I'd get people like just, nobody had any privacy, period. So there was nowhere to go. It was just, if I was crying, it would have to be probably in the shower, like secretly. But someone finally realized that something was off. Someone who could just tell from looking at Paulina that this wasn't right for her. She never looked at happy. Nasta Lee. Uh, she just went through a lot, you know, a lot of stress. Nasta said that whenever she stopped by the train station, she would always check on Paulina, who the family calls Nina. I, you know, I thought maybe Ruby was a little bit strict on Nina a little bit, but that's the mother-in-law's duty to do what she needs to do for the daughter-in-law to teach them, you know. So Nasta would keep an eye out, try to suss out the situation. Like I would like give her like the eye, is everything okay? Do I need to tell your mom something? Because if there was anything going on, by the time I got there, everything looked at all too sweet and everything was okay, you know? But when I'm out of the picture, it's probably a totally different story. Nasta could tell it was all getting a bit too much for Paulina. She recognized what Paulina was going through because she had experienced something eerily similar. Nasta knew there could be a way out of this situation, but she worried it wasn't open to Paulina, that it was too late. That's after the break. I know you've heard me mention a million times that I couldn't reach Bobby and his family. But I wanted to know how these early years of Paulina's marriage felt from their perspective, for a family that cared so much about tradition and community. And that's how I found myself talking to Nick Wildwood. Although Wildwood is more like a nickname. Because the town I'm in is Wildwood, New Jersey. Ah, okay. It's almost kind of like it. Jesus, Nazareth. I see, I see. Okay, so Nick Wildwood of Wildwood. Yeah, the whole family <laughs> has that last name. Nick, who's 71 years old, is a character. After that initial phone call, he let Asal and me interview him at a hotel in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Nick arrived wearing a brown three-piece suit, complete with a tan fedora and aviator glasses. And like a true gentleman, he came bearing coffee and donuts. I got you the pink with the sprinkles. Oh, my favorite. I knew that. I'm a psychic. That's why I knew that. <laughs> it won't surprise you to know that Nick also comes from a family of psychics. My sister-in-law's had a place. My aunt's had a place. My grandma had a place. My mom did it from, from her 20s 
to the last day she lived, 92. She was still telling palm readings. So Nick's family had a pretty traditional Romani structure. The labor broke down along these classic gender lines. And the guys like to learn how to work, whatever their family does, be it fix a roof, fix a driveway, or work in the amusement park. The girls, we teach them how to cook, how to clean, how to sew, how to raise a family. Nick is an activist. I found him through Professor Hancock. For a while, Nick raised money for Romani refugees who were fleeing Ukraine. He's also spent time lobbying in Washington, D.C. for better Romani representation on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council. So he's driven by tradition and a sense of duty to his history and community. I love our culture. We're unique. We're different than anybody in the whole entire world. We have survived slavery and almost annihilated by the Holocaust, we shouldn't even be here. For Nick, part of being Romani means sacrificing some of your own desire. You have to give back. Your life does not only belong to you. You have to do what's right for the sake of the culture. And it's not just in terms of activism. It's personal. You marry to make a family. You marry to make your family bigger. We don't marry for love. Love grows secondary. As time goes on, there's like different levels of love. First, you just care for the person, then you start to really like the person. Maybe after you have children, you start to realize you love this person. Then love becomes important, but not from the very beginning. Nick is the father of three daughters. His hope for them, he said, was to get married to Romani men, have kids young, keep the family line going because it's their responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility to keep the culture intact. That is the purpose, the sole purpose in our culture. We wanna keep everybody close-knit. We want them to learn our ways. So when they get older, they'll be able to do it for their children who are now getting married in the same way. But that labor of holding up tradition can be split a bit unequally along gender lines. Because they, they want to take your inside out and mold you into what they want to mold you. To be what they want you to be. To clean, cook, serve, make good money, put the man on the pedestal. Well, come on now. I can't do that. It's an emotional abuse. Paulina's cousin Nasta said, in her own experience as a married woman, it was really hard to do so much domestic labor in the name of tradition and to be expected to want to pass it on. It's very hard for a woman, especially when you have kids, because you don't want to see your kids go through what you went through. Because Nasta has a daughter who also had a hard time adjusting to married life. I feel like all of us girls in this culture went through the same thing. Brenda Lee sat on the couch beside her mother, wearing a long floral skirt. She had these beautiful, flashy nails with these little evil eyes on them. Brenda is 24 years old and has already been married twice. Her second marriage had ended less than a year before we met. Brenda said both of her relationships came with the similar expectations that faced Paulina— the endless cooking and cleaning, helping the in-laws. And for Brenda, she was also expected to learn the Romani language. 
no one ever really taught me how to talk in Homanes. And they would tell me, why you don't know that much words? Well, because I never grew up around it. I, I, my mother never taught me, you know, and, um, you know, that's something I had a problem with them because they would talk to me in Homanes and I wouldn't, I wouldn't understand them. Like Paulina, Brenda also felt alone. Felt like I was trapped. Brenda said she wasn't allowed to talk with her family about what was going on. Not even her mother. I was feeling hurt because I'm close to my mother. You know, me and her are very close. You know, we, you know, it was the only friend I had growing up, to be honest with you. I started getting real depressed because I, there's only so long I can go without talking to my mother. Yeah, it was hard, yeah, because I knew that they didn't want me to talk to her. But what else I'm going to do, you know? If I was to call up or say anything or just to say hi, they would turn the words around. But that's why we would we said, okay, we're not going to call. Because we don't want them to say that we broke up their marriage. That's probably exactly what they would say. A lot of our marriages are breaking up because the mother and father-in-law meddle in their business. Because Nick Wildwood believes that each Romani person must ensure that their culture survives, that responsibility comes down to every individual, every husband and wife, even every in-law. Like if I had a son, I'd be proud to have a daughter-in-law in my house. I'd actually treat her like she's my real daughter. I'd have great respect for her, just like if she was my daughter. But even Nick admits that sometimes the relationship between parents and daughters-in-law can become untenable. Some people, because they had to pay a dowry for her, now think she's, I own your body and I could do whatever I want. And that's how you break up a marriage. So according to Nick, yeah, some in-laws are doing it wrong. They're not upholding the traditions properly. But Brenda says she did try to uphold the traditions. And after two failed marriages, she's changed her mind about them. Now Brenda and Nasta think the fault might lie with the traditions themselves. I don't care for the, the traditions no more. I really don't because aren't they're, they're stupid. To be honest with you, they're stupid and it doesn't make no sense. You know, and I don't don't really see what's the point in it anymore. Brenda said she and her husband and her in-laws were constantly fighting, and she felt cut off from her whole life, totally isolated. Until finally, one day, she couldn't take it anymore. And I said, you know what, that's enough. Enough is enough. I can't do this no more. You guys are arguing over the stupidest things. And I told him, why am I here then if you don't? if you don't want to keep this going. Brenda mustered up her courage to leave it all behind and come home. She bought a ticket that same day and moved back in with her mom, Nasta. And I said, wow, look at that. I said, wow. But I feel bad. You know, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know, she came home. She stayed gone. There was no kids involved. Thank God. Do you think about that sometimes? Like, yeah. oh my God, what if I had had kids? Yeah, if I did, I probably would have stood there. You know, majority of the, the women, they stay. When you have kids, it's harder to leave. This is true in any marriage. 
but particularly Romney marriages. Kids are the beating heart of the Romney family. And that was the one duty Paulina had yet to complete. The one last thing she had to do to fulfill her ultimate expectation as a wife. She was supposed to have babies. More after the break. About a year and a half after her wedding, Paulina pulled a tarot card for herself using one of those random online tarot card generators. That's a thing, by the way. And the card that came up on the screen. The Empress, which is this pregnant woman, like literally the image is this pregnant woman. And I'm like, that's so crazy. Like it's everyone knows like that's the pregnancy slash fertility card. Paulina brushed it off. It was just a random online card generator, right? And then I pulled out the same card in my own tarot reading with my deck. It was literally in the cards and also verified by a pregnancy test. At 18, Paulina was expecting. I just had this like flood of emotions. I was like just all these worries and thinking like I'm too young. But then I was also thinking like, but I also want this baby. Like, I don't want anything to happen to it. Like, I was instantly very, like, something just switched in my brain. And I was very much like, I need to protect this little fetus. All of the hard work Paulina had done to fit into her new family, all that patience and loyalty and housework, it all finally seemed to pay off once everyone found out she was pregnant. So right after I found out I was pregnant, I was definitely treated much better. Paulina said Bobby's family began to embrace her wholly and completely. So I was not expected to do any of the normal things that I had to do previous to finding out. I didn't have to wake up early and make breakfast and cook coffee, or I could rest if I wanted to rest. You know, I think during morning sickness, my mother-in-law was doing my laundry. So it was very different than before. She said Bobby pitched in too, bringing Paulina breakfast in bed. He vacuumed the dishes, and Paulina's in-laws treated her like a porcelain doll. Anything to protect mother and baby. All the parents were like, we know it's a boy, and we can just tell, and we know it's a boy, and it's our grandson, and we've been wanting him. And then I was like, no, it's a girl, like, it's a girl, it's a girl. I was just, like, so, so sure. And so I was so happy when I found out it was a girl. I felt relieved almost. Like, oh, it was a girl, so it's, like, my child or something. Like, as weird as that sounds. In the fall of 2014, Paulina gave birth to a baby girl. Like, the moment she was born, it felt like someone poured, like, warm liquid of, like, love. Like, just from the very top of my head, like, I just was in love complete. Like, no drug will ever compare. Like, it was just, I don't know, it's, like, a pretty amazing thing, I guess. (laughs) And Bobby was right beside her. They were a perfectly happy little family, at least for a few hours. So then I wake up the next day and the lady comes in and she like wakes me up. So she's like, we need to name the baby. 
Paulina already had a name in mind, one that she and Bobby had chosen together. But Bobby wasn't there. He was nowhere to be found. We couldn't get a hold of him. We didn't know where he was. And Paulina needed Bobby's help to announce the baby's name because she needed him to stand up to his parents. His parents wanted to name her Diane after their grandmother. Bobby's parents were going ahead with naming the baby what they wanted. And Paulina didn't have any allies or advocates for the name she and Bobby had chosen. He wasn't there. So I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, where is this guy? So that whole night, he wasn't there. That whole entire night, the next night, he was completely gone, like completely missing. The next day, finally, like someone finds him and he's like sleeping in the hospital in one of the waiting rooms. And then on top of that, his parents wouldn't let us name her, you know, the name we wanted to name her. They said, you can do that for the middle name. We want her to be named Diane. So I was extremely upset with him and I had to sign the paper and I'm like, I don't agree with this. He's like, I do too, but I have to do what my parents say. So then we signed the birth certificate and it says Diane. You know the deal by now. Bobby and his parents didn't respond to my questions about this story. This is all from Paulina's perspective. And Paulina said she was determined she'd never call her baby Diane. To this day, everyone calls her by her middle name, the name Paulina and Bobby chose. And on the day when Paulina and her daughter were released from the hospital and went back to the train station, there was a crowd of relatives waiting for them. Another party. But this was a different kind of party, one that was softer, more gentle. It was a beautiful little moment. You know, we put on Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder. There was a lot of families. They decorated the house. So it was nice. Paulina felt surrounded by people, but at last, in a good way, with her family. And my parents were there, and everyone was together and happy. It was so amazing just having all my family there. Once again, the train station felt different for Paulina. Different than when she was a kid, and different than when she was a new wife. Different because Paulina was a mother now. This was the thing she was supposed to do. She had cooked, she had cleaned, she had run a business, and now she had given birth. She had nothing left to prove. After my first daughter was born, I stopped doing things. I really just gave up. Paulina had done everything right. And finally, now that she had seen it through, she wondered if she really wanted this life at all. And if this was the life she wanted for her baby. I felt like there's no way that this life could be sustainable for me. Like, would I want them to live, you know, this life that I'm living? And then I was thinking, like, probably not. But now, it was too late. Her window for leaving was closed, shut by the very elements that made her want to open it up, her daughter. This is foretold. Next week. That's when I started feeling like I'm stuck and like I'm trapped. And 
that's the hard part. Like, you know, that's where most of this like began. It was a recent thing. Like I literally just woke up and I was like, I can't do this anymore. This episode was created and hosted by me, Faith Pinu, with Asala Sanapur, senior producer. Alex Higgins, producer. Lauren Rapp, assistant editor. Avery Truffleman, editor. Sue Horton, editor. Jasmine Aguilera, editor, executive producer. Hiba Alarbani, executive producer. Dr. Ethel Brooks, Romani cultural consultant. Mike Heflin, audio engineer. Vadim Kolpakov, seven-string guitarist and composer. Alex PGSV, composer. Fact-checking on this episode was done by Helen Lee, Lauren Rabb, Asala Sanapur, and myself. Our theme music was composed by Vadim Kolpakov and Alex PGSV. Other original scoring is by Vadim Kolpakov, Alex PGSV, as well as Alex Higgins. Thanks to Shawnee Hilton and Kevin Merida. Thank you also to our marketing and creative services team, Brandon Sides, Dylan Harris, Carrie Shemansky, and Kayla Bell, and to Scott Wilson for his research from the LA Times Library Desk. And thank you for listening. 